I'm Edith Shakraborty and this is The Business. Coming up this week, can a green revolution power Britain's economic recovery? We discuss clean energy, low carbon fuel and the cost of environmental policy. Plus, Californian crisis. We hear about Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's latest plans to tackle a $26 billion budget shortfall. And, as media execs get their knickers in a twist over non-tweeting teenagers, we analyse the business of microblogging and other new media phenomena. This is The Business from The Guardian. And a splendid panel joins us for this week's programme. Larry Ellitz, our economics editor. Pleasant time at G8, Larry? Very good. Didn't see very much of Italy, but what I did see of it was uh, it was actually very beautiful, the earthquake zone up in the mountains. I saw quite a lot of inside of a bus, but not very much of the, not much of La Quia. And Tim Webb's Observer's industrial editor. What's the best jolly you've been on? Well, I went up to uh, down to Romney Marsh yesterday uh, in, in Kent, so that was uh, to, to visit a wind farm that was being opened. So that last week, the Isle of Wight. So um, you, get you know, it, don't you, I think yeah, Larry's really green with envy. Romney, I can yeah. see. Yeah. Marsh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Romney Marsh. I think probably beats it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ron, well, put your Blackberries and iPhones away for a moment. We'll be coming onto Twitter and new media later on, but we're going to start with the environment. The government publishes its much vaunted energy white paper this week. The initiatives from Energy Secretary Ed Miliband include clean energy cashback schemes, eco-community projects and a so-called social tariff to protect poorer families from the cost of switching on to green power. Writing The Observer this week, Gordon Brown said it was not only a moral duty to plan for a low-carbon future, but also that green-coal employment will be worth more than £4 trillion by 2015. So what if the economy down in dumps, can a green revolution really kickstart our recovery? Larry, green policies often very popular with visionary politicians and with particular types of voters, many of whom read our paper. But it doesn't come cheap, does it? No, there is a cost to it. But I think actually there's going to be a cost to energy policy, whatever we do. I think the days of cheap energy are over. So anybody who says that we're going to go back to the days of $2 oil, which is what really powered the industrial revolution in the post-war period, they're living in cloud cuckoo land. We are going to have to pay more for our energy because the traditional low-cost sources are running out, cheap oils, probably a thing of the past cheap gas will soon be a thing of the past and so we've got to look at, uh, at new forms of energy and that will cost um can it be a, a source of growth in the future yes i think it can i mean that, uh, i'm involved with a green new deal project where the idea is to try and do for the 2010s what uh, roosevelt did for the 1930s and the idea there is that you actually make a virtue of the fact that we need to switch over to to new forms of energy and try and put people to work um, doing it so you know insulation projects renewable energy programs and that will cost money there's absolutely no doubt about it, it will cost a lot it would be a big investment uh, uh, involved in that and and for some people it is going to involve quite big increases in their energy bills but um, i think that's a reality but we we keep hearing the state's cash strapped that we're going to all have to pay more in taxes anyway and we're going to see lower public spending so where's this money going to come from i think the public investment there has to be a certain element of public investment and the government has to make 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 something of the fact that it's now actually got very low interest rates can borrow very cheaply and it needs to direct what investment there is into renewable energy sources so that's one of the reasons i favor some sort of control over the financial system because then the government can actually direct investment into productive uh, forms of investment rather than into speculative forms of investment so that has to happen and i think that we do have to take it on the chin that we the government probably does have to tax us a bit more uh, in order that it can it can spend a bit more. I mean, that, 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 we, we, I don't think we can actually run um, a new energy policy on the current levels of spending and all the current levels of tax. Tim, we'll be hearing an awful lot of those sorts of arguments from politicians this week, the kind of vision thing about what 
Britain's going to look like past 2015. But what's the state of the energy market now? How far are we towards meeting any of these targets? Can I just pick up on something that Larry said about because it's very important who how we're going to pay for um, new, these new wind farms and new nuclear reactors that are hopefully going to build that be built that will uh, you know cut carbon emissions and you know stop climate change and and there've always been two two ways of paying for this either through taxpayer uh, money uh, which has been raised through means tested uh, taxation so the rich contributing more or through uh, electricity and gas bills and obviously the problem with the latter is that they're not means tested so everyone pays. everyone pays the same whether you're in a high income or a low income you're, you're paying the same bill sounds like the government's going to introduce or force uh, the energy suppliers people like british gas and power uh, to force them to uh, to offer subsidized lower tariffs for low-income households something called a mandatory social tariff which you you mentioned and um, what's interesting about that is, is given the, the, the state of the public uh, finances, um, I think it's unrealistic or, or whether we'd like it or not. I don't think the government will start writing checks or, you know, building wind farm for wind farms or, or even big loans for wind farms. So it's likely that this bill will, will be borne by consumers. And if it's the if it effectively it looks like it will be the rich who will be um, subsidising uh, the kind of lower income households, not through taxation, but through paying effectively helping or subsidizing these uh, mandatory sure social tariffs it doesn't sound it sounds to me like it'd be the rich and the middle classes who'd be subsidized well okay rich richer i should say rather than poor yeah i mean middle classes and uh, yeah well, I mean, the cut-off point comes doesn't it i mean I, I would doubt that very few people will be classified as poor poor enough to have the new social tariffs under the under the new government scheme otherwise it's going to be very very expensive well there are about six million under the kind of fuel poverty definition and fuel poverty being defined as a household where who, which spends uh, a tenth of its disposable income on heating and, and lighting their homes. So about, that's about one in four uh, households who are, could be defined as being low income for that, in that situation. Just to come back to this idea of where we stand at the moment, one of the big obstacles has been how you get, the, how you get anyone to pay for it, either producers or consumers. Um, where do we actually stand in terms of having in this green energy at the moment? Well, not we're not doing really well. It's pretty embarrassing, actually. We're um, the UK, even though we're the windiest island in uh, Europe. We've got lots of lots of coastline with with waves off the coming off the Atlantic and the North Sea. Yet we're we're ranked downwards at Malta and Luxembourg in terms of the amount of renewable electricity generation, like wind farms and solar power, uh, um, that that we generate. So we've got a long a lot of catching up to do, and the government and the energy industry are, are well aware of that. And hopefully tomorrow we'll see some more. Give some sense of the targets and mm. how, how close. Right. Well, they're pretty. They're very, very ambitious. Some might say impossible to meet, but no one. Uh, by the the UK has signed up to a European Union target to get fifteen percent of its uh, energy from renewable sources. Now, renewable energy in that uh, definition means not just electricity generation but also transport and heating so to hit this target because it's very hard to make planes for example cut carbon emissions from flying a lot of the the burden will have to fall on electric the electricity generators the power stations etc to make these savings so it's estimated that uh, under this 15 percent target uh, as a result, 32% of the electricity that's generated will have to come from renewable sources to meet this overall renewable target. So that's that's up from about 5% today. So that is a huge increase in about in 11 years. We're not going to do it, are we? 
Well, no one's given up publicly. I mean, I, I was talking to Ed Miliband yesterday down in uh, Romney Marsh, and he he's uh, you know very optimistic and talking about green hope, not green despair. So you know, sounds don't, like a good soundbite. Good yeah. soundbite. Very. The good government's soundbite. got lots of twenty twenty targets. It's got twenty twenty targets for child poverty. It's got twenty twenty targets for renewable energy. It's got twenty twenty targets for everything. We've been out of power by there's a lot of by then. yes. There is I mean, a the lot. Fact, of... The fact is that we've spent years and years and years dragging our heels on renewable energy, while other countries have powered ahead. I mean, if you look at Denmark, you talked about countries that got lots of wind. I mean, Denmark's miles ahead of us in wind power and has, and has actually built up a very strong wind power industry as a result of the government's wise foresight. I mean, here we've just, you know, let things drift and drift and what drift. What did they do right that we didn't? Well, they had some state intervention for a kickoff. They actually decided that the government had a role in it rather than you being, surprised me, being completely, completely, completely wedded to free market dogma and assuming that the market and the price mechanism is going to work. You know, we've come to, we've come to the, where we are now in 2019. Blimey, you know, it's just not worked. It hasn't worked, that, that model. I mean, in the countries like Germany countries like Denmark and I was in Ireland a few weeks ago where they've actually they're actually pushing ahead with a renewable strategy which despite the state of their economy which is 10 times worse than ours I mean they're far more advanced in their thinking on on renewables than we are here we're still in the dark ages over here I think Tim yeah that's a fair summary and uh, I think we we, it is embarrassing and um, I mean that's a point that uh, the company that's building this wind farm that that I visited yesterday largest onshore wind farm in the southeast of England 60 megawatts it took them 10 years to build this uh, wind farm to get the planning uh, approvals to overcome several challenges over such things as uh, you know damage to wildlife or noise which um would eventually overturn but it took it delayed it by about three years this whole process and so planning is one big issue um and they're a german company they've built you know thousands of these things um places like poland and spain and and germany and that you know it's um pretty embarrassing but if i just pick up on one other thing i do sense that the government is changing its uh emphasis that yes we may miss these renewable targets which which is clearly not a good thing but even though we might not build enough wind farms if you can build enough nuclear power stations and do enough clean coal through ccs where you capture the carbon emissions from dirty coal plants if if we can meet our carbon budgets that way and that's the name of the game we're meeting you know cutting our carbon emissions then the fact that we haven't quite built we won't have built enough wind farms won't be such a disaster Larry, Tim's trying to sound optimistic there, but it sounds like green a... Green hope, green, not green despair, Larry, don't forget. <laughs> that sounds like a recycling When you get sacked from here, Tim, you've always got a job red milliband at least for the next six months, mate. I think, you know, you've done a very, very Only good job. Months. Well, they'll be out of power by the time any of this is actually dealt with. I mean, I've, I, 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 I've, known, Ed, I've known Ed Milliband for a very, very long time and he's a very sweet person, but um, I would be gobsmacked if uh, half of, or even a quarter of what they promised tomorrow is actually delivered over the next five or six years. I mean, I think that the government needs to have a, a real step change in its approach to energy policy, and it needs to it needs to actually think that the next crisis after the financial crisis is going to be an energy crisis. Um, and I don't really think that's seeped through into into the into the thinking of government. Bloody hell, we're friends like you, Larry. I want to see Ed <laughs> I want to see Ed Miliband's enemies. Okay, we'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, offset your desire for all things green at guardian.co.uk/environment. You cold-blooded bastard. I'll tell you what I think of it. I live to see you eat that contract. But I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm going to ram it into your stomach and break your goddamn spine! Actor turned California governor Arnold Schwarzenegger is in real trouble. Once the world's sixth largest economy, the Golden State has fared particularly badly in the current financial crisis. 
It has a $26 billion budget shortfall, and the past couple of months have seen huge cuts to education, healthcare, and other public services, as well as the Californian state government issuing IOUs to taxpayers and businesses owed money. Having already proposed legalising marijuana and ending the use of textbooks in schools to save money, the governator is now looking to cut costs even further by closing California's 200 state parks. Suzanne Goldenberg is The Guardian's US environment correspondent. For years, what you've had in California is uh, the state borrowing money to sort of uh, carry through its spending and, and to keep on sort of running various programs. And then the financial crisis hit last autumn and it just couldn't go on. How will closing the state parks affect tourism to California? When you're talking about tourism for state parks in particular, you're talking about places that local people can go. So, you know, it's not people coming from overseas to see Yosemite or or something like that. Those are are national parks. Those are international tourist attractions. But, you know, there are 270 state parks in in California that are historic sites, nature preserves, wetlands, even golf courses. And these are places that local people can go to when they want to get away. Now, bear in mind, they don't have the money for really expensive posh holidays anymore. So what you're really hurting the ability of local people to get out and enjoy themselves. And conservationists will argue you're also hurting local rural communities who depend on these visitors to to make money. We think of California as being a bit of a world leader when it comes to environmental industries. How much do you think all this worrying about the budget and about public spending cuts will affect the environmental industries in California? Oh, there's already been a huge effect. I mean, the pool of money has just dried up enormously. At the same time, you know, so there's no venture capital, very little. It's It's been harder and harder for these firms to raise money. And now what we're also seeing is uh, gasoline prices going way down, so that it's become even harder for these sort of emerging technologies to, to make the case that they could be commercially viable because gas prices are going. Therefore, the pressure is off to try and develop new renewable energy soon, at least from a purely cost standpoint. And yet we hear from the Obama administration quite a lot that they're, they're worried uh, about replacing financial engineering jobs with real green engineering jobs. Is that rhetoric? Is that a genuine commitment? Or is it pie in the sky? We don't know yet. It's early days. But I mean, it's certainly true that the Obama administration has latched on to the idea that America's economic recovery is tied towards how quickly it can move into and develop a clean energy economy. It, uh, you know, and to hear members of the cabinet and Obama himself tell it, you know, this is the future for America. It's going to be to the economy what the internet was in the 90s or the space race was in the 50s. So, you know, the rhetoric is, is mile high. In terms of the reality and what they're actually delivering in terms of new green jobs, we don't know yet. But even on their most optimistic, rosy estimates, there's just no way that they have uh, begun to deliver even a fraction of the amount of jobs that are being lost every month. You know, there were uh, 467,000 jobs lost in June. That's a lot of green jobs to make up. And you're talking really a few hundred jobs here, a few thousand jobs here, nothing on the scale of the jobs that are being shed every month. The media world in something has spin this week after a teenage intern at Morgan Stanley's European media analyst team gave a surprisingly withering assessment of Twitter, the darling of the web world and the current new media fad du jour. The 15-year-old said emphatically that teenagers do not use Twitter and that they find advertising, even online advertising, quote, extremely annoying and pointless. The timing of his report couldn't be better. 
or worse, media moguls like Rupert Murdoch, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are meeting at their annual get-together at the influential Allen & Co. conference in Idaho. Larry, this sounds then like the teenagers spotted the Emperor's new clothes. This is another dot-com bubble, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's another dot-com bubble or it's another sort of CB radio. I mean, that's the sort of that's how I sort of compare Twitter. It's one of these sort of fads which come and go. I mean, who, who these days admits to going on Friends Reunited, which was the thing we were all supposed to be on. And the for, ITM for, paid out millions. For I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I must admit, I'm just an old fogey. You know, I, I just don't get Twitter. I just don't see the point of it, to be honest. And I think it will be one of those things which will come and go pretty quickly because people have got better things to do than say... You know, unemployment figures out tomorrow, they could be bad, which is what I would probably Twitter or did you see that inflation number? Boy, that looked poor, you know, or something like that. I mean, I just, I just, I could be doing something better with my time, I think, rather than just sending out asinine nonsense over the, over the, over the airwaves or, or over my mobile phone. I just think, you know, and I think people get fed up with it pretty quickly, to be honest. But I mean, I think more generally, uh, the general point is that no one really yet has found a way of making money out of digital. It's a bit like, you know, the, the, the way businesses approach it is a bit like that Kevin Costner film, Field, Field of Dreams, you know, build it, they will come, you know, expand digital, we will make money out of it. But no one's actually, that's the, the interesting business point is no one has yet found a way of making money out of digital. Um, and they sort of assume that eventually a business model will arrive, but, you know, it's taking quite a long time to show its head above the horizon. Tim, that's the Old Testament view from Larry Elliott. Um, <laughs> you're fresh of face. Um, if you're a business and you've got this fantastic new technology, it doesn't matter if it works or doesn't work, you've got to try and adapt to it and try and use it in some way, haven't you? Yes, you can't uninvent the uh, internet, which maybe is unfortunate for newspapers. But um, yeah, Twitter's there, but it's it's not as revolutionary as I think some people are really making out. I mean, it's interesting, the coverage of Iran and the protests about the, the elections that in uh you know there was so much coverage about twitter and and twitter is just one it's it's not it's not the story i mean it, without twitter these protests still would have happened i remember the world cup in 1998 when there were some riots in france and and there was lots of excited media reports saying that um british Hool- english football fans hooligans were um coordinating their 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 on fights phones. on mobile phones and text messages as if it's the most sinister thing and that this newfangled technology was actually the the cause of this violence but clearly i mean i think it's just as larry says it's a bit of a media obsession it's new in a year's time we'll all be talking about something else i hope and the, what, what chimes with me with this 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 report is that my kids aged 16 and 19 they don't use twitter for very much uh, the, the same reasons which are you know they think it's cost too much cost too they'd they, rather they, use they, your broadband they, connection they would use, rather use my free broadband connection they don't want to use up their mobile phone that money you know which which they get and they, and they just think it's for old farts I mean that's the pretty pretty bluntly they think it's for people who want to appear hip and at the cutting edge okay well in a rare break from podcasting tradition we've got two teenagers in the studio today Eloise and Isabel what do you two make, make of the the report do you think it sounds like your sort of new media experience do you not use twitter what do you how do you um, spend your time yeah i don't use twitter I isabel and um, yeah isabel i got an account but i've never been on it and i think that's completely pointless because um it does 
the one thing that Facebook does as well, but it doesn't have anything else. It's just status updates, and I'm not interested in what particular celebrity is doing or what my friend's just eating for dinner. I don't care. So I think it's completely pointless, really. And Eloise, Larry was just making the point that teenagers don't really want to pay for anything when they can get it for free, which sounds actually not like just like teenagers, sounds like most of us, actually. But is there anything that you would actually pay for? Would you pay to have a Gmail account or would you pay to have a Facebook account? Um, to be honest, I wouldn't pay for an account when I can just go on Facebook for free. My dad's already got the broadband set up at home. It's free. It's easy to access. Um, I think the underlying problem with Twitter is for celebrities that go on it, it's a big I am. And for the older generation, it's a big I'm young. And as a young person, we don't want to hear about either of that. We want to know what our friends are up to. And if we want to look at news or if we want to look at current affairs, then we'll go on the internet or we'll look in the paper. And uh, Twitter just seems a bit unnecessary and just uninviting for people of my generation in the current age. So you were saying Twitter's like an electronic version of a medallion man. It's something we do to make ourselves feel young, is it? Yeah, well, I'd say as a 17-year-old, it's not something I'd go on because most of the people that are on there are in the 30-somethings and it's all the... And they're ancient. They're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. OK, so you're 17 now. At some point, we're hoping that you'll be media consumers of the future and you actually will pay for something. What, what kind of things would you pay for? What can we get? What can we do to get you to pay for something? Um, I'd say I prefer. I might pay for a subscription when I'm older if there's something I'm, you know, particularly interested in, and it gives me specialised information on a subject that I have to know. Um, for example, just say when I'm older, I do a degree in history or something, and it gives me particular information that will help me with my degree. I might pay for something like that. Um, if it's online and available, because um, that might be cheaper and easier than getting a book from the library or from getting it via email or other sources. What about paying like for a podcast about the world of business? Um, well, yeah, <laughs> if that's something I'm interested in, then and um, you are. I am interested in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> would pay a lot of money. How much would you pay? <laughs> well, it depends. Did you sort of bid up the price of his labour? Yeah. Depends on the quality and uh, how long it is and how good it is, really. Quality, quality is very important. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think as someone who's looking to do an economics degree when I'm older, um, if it does give me specialised information about the world of business or the world of economics, that would help me at university or help me in later life then yeah I'd, I'd definitely pay for a subscription and there's an like economics column on the Monday that you might also pay for yeah basically mm-hmm. yeah. I'd look into that yeah. <laughs> premium product premium products will sell I think in the new digital world <laughs> premium products for premium people <laughs> well there's an interview with Bizstone the improbably named founder of Twitter on this week's Tech Weekly podcast and on that note it's time to say thanks to our hastily assembled panel Tim Webb Larry Elliott Eloise and Isabel if you want to give your feedback or find links to our stories our blog lives at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer's Ben Green, I'm Edith Shakraborty, and that was a business. <laughs>